Thank you, Pastor Jeff, for preaching last Sunday. He did a great job, and it allowed me to take the week before off, which allowed me to be CEO of the Myers home while my wife chaperoned Brady's eighth grade trip to Disneyland. That was the longest my wife had ever been away from me and the kids, and so I was left to assume her many responsibilities, her many responsibilities. We actually had a a really fun week, thanks almost entirely to the four pages of instructions that my wife left me. Instructions I initially scoffed at, but by the end of the week had come to cherish second only to the Holy Scriptures. (laughs) She first showed them to me and I I made this face like, are you serious right now? Before she left, we did a walkthrough of our home. I saw parts of our home I'd never even seen before. She taught me how to use the washing machine in case there was some sort of an emergency. And I was very happy for this. She took me to the Littles closets and she showed me, no joke, she showed me their daily outfits which had been collected on hangers and each marked with a different day of the week. She's an impressive woman. I'd like to read you my favorite sentence from her manual. Thursday, today is the day you need to find all the chapel clothes. The oldest three all need white shirt, tie, and tan pants. Peyton's shirt usually looks like a bum wrestled it off an executive in a dark parking lot. All of this turned out prophetic. It must be ironed, but he may resist, overcome him. (laughs) So I let him wear a sweatshirt over his wrinkled shirt that day. That was exactly the kind of practical advice I needed. So we all enjoyed each other. Uh, Kristen and Brady had a blast in Disneyland, and now we are all home, safe and sound, eating more than question mark plus melted cheese. (laughs) That was dinner every night. What will I melt cheese on tonight? (laughs) So again, thank you. Now this morning, as we continue our study of Ecclesiastes, we will be finishing chapter 2, which if you divide the book into four parts, which many do and I do, then the verses that we are reading today will bring an end to the first section, chapters 1 and 2. And by the end of this sermon, Lord willing, we're going to fully understand Solomon's full assessment of his life. That's what he gives us is his full evaluation, his full assessment of his life to the point where he writes this book of Ecclesiastes. 
Before I preach that sermon, we should pray together. So will you please bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, we come to you by the Holy Spirit and in the name of your son, Jesus, to ask for help. Help me to preach well. Help all of us to hear well, not just with our ears, but with our minds and hearts. And again, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. If you're using one of our church Bibles, which you are free to take with you, if you don't own a Bible, you will find today's text on page 356. For those of you who may be visiting today, we are reading this book written by the great King Solomon of Israel, which is his shockingly honest commentary on the enjoyment of life. That's what you have in the book of Ecclesiastes. It is a great man's shockingly honest commentary on life, specifically on the enjoyment of life. So I'd like to begin today with a review, reminding all of us of what Solomon has said so far. The first 11 verses of chapter 1 are the king's introduction. And there he gave his central theme, all is vanity. All of life, he says, under the sun is vanity. He uses the word vanity 34 times in this book. He uses the phrase under the sun 26 times, making his main point very clear. All of life under the sun is vanity. And that is a true statement. It's not an exaggeration. It's not just doom and gloom. It's not detached from reality. That is reality. Life is vanity. Life is fleeting. Life is inscrutable. Life is monotonous. It's vapor, which is what the word vanity means. It's short, absurd, and repetitive. It goes by quickly. Its circumstances are inexplicable. It's the same thing over and over and over. There is no satisfaction here. There is no fullness here, no peace, no contentment, no meaning, no joy, no happiness. All of life under the sun is vanity. And so, for the undistracted thinking person Life is, as Solomon writes in 1 verse 8, full of weariness. That's his Debbie Downer conclusion that he comes to in the first 11 verses of chapter 1. Then, in 1 verse 12 through 2 verse 11, the text preceding our text today, Solomon described the experiment which brought him to that conclusion. And here's the experiment. He decided to use all his wisdom, all of his wealth, and all of his power to pursue anything and everything this life has to offer under the sun. That is, apart from God. So he played the atheist and he decided to, 1 verse 13, seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. So anything and everything, 
Anything and everything. We read about it last week. He went lowbrow. He went highbrow. He turned to madness and folly, to laughter, pleasure, too much wine, too many women. That didn't do it. So he turned to hard work and responsibility. He built a temple and a palace and homes and gardens and forests. And that didn't do it. And so he reached the conclusion in 2 verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. In other words, here's what Solomon discovered. All of life is vanity. And it is not in man's power to gain true satisfaction anywhere on this planet. That's his conclusion. Now that brings us to our text this morning, which is the professor's full evaluation of his experiment. Verse 11 is his one sentence summed up conclusion, but verses 12 through 26 is his full assessment. And let me prepare you for what's ahead. It's going to get worse before it's going to get better. You heard Pastor Jeff read it. Solomon is going to pull us to the bottom of the ocean with him. He's going to drag us down to his valley of the shadow of death. He is going to confront us with the hard and bitter realities of this life, which is potentially depressing because, as T.S. Eliot famously wrote, humankind cannot bear very much reality. So I want to prepare you for that. Hang on for the next 20 minutes or so. Resist the urge to keep checking the score of the Cavs game. And listen to what Solomon has to say at rock bottom. If you can honestly listen to and stomach the next 12 verses, Solomon is going to give us some hope at the end of the section. In 1849, J.G. Weihinger summarized this first section, 1 and 2, as follows. 1 verse 2 through 2 verse 26 shows that by the eternal, unalterably fixed course of all earthly things and the experience of the vain and unsatisfactory strivings after earthly wisdom and selfish gratifications, a God-fearing enjoyment of life and accepting gratefully the present good can alone constitute the end of our earthly existence. So we will see there is a new theme waiting for us. And it is the enjoyment of life. So hang on. We'll get there. There are three sections in our text today. Visible is three paragraphs in your Bible, if you're looking, 12 through 17, 18 through 23, 24 through 26. We'll take them one at a time, beginning with verses 12 through 17. And in this first section, the king gives his full assessment of his madness and folly. 
So, verse 12. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Here's what he means. No one could come after him and do this experiment better. No one will have his measure of wealth, wisdom, and power. So I think Solomon feels that he owes us his evaluation. No one's going to be able to repeat this, so he feels obligated to pass on the results. Verse 13. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. That's not so bad. That's positive. This starts positive. He's thankful for his wisdom. Wisdom is, he's saying, better than folly. Verse 14. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So here's what he's saying. The wise person is walking around in the light with his eyes open. That's his definition of a wise person. The wise person is walking around in the light with his eyes open. The fool is walking around in the dark with his eyes closed. In other words, the wise man can see reality. That's a wise man according to Solomon. He has eyes in his head. He's walking in light. A wise man can see reality. He's not ignorant to it. He sees things for what they really are. Back to the text. And yet, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. So you have two kinds of people. Wise people who have their eyes open and fools who have their eyes closed. Solomon is wise. He is, the Bible tells us, the wisest man to ever live. Solomon is wise, but he's realizing, think about this, here's what he's sharing, he's wise, but he's realizing that in the end, the same thing happens to the wise man and the fool. They die. So different paths, a wise path or a foolish path, but here's what's nagging at him, but in the end, they both die. They, they have the same destination. So he asks a great question. What's the point? So what's the point he's asking? Wisdom is better, he said in verse 13. And yet, he says in verses 14 through 17, wisdom makes no lasting difference. It makes no permanent difference. The bodies of the wise man and the fool both end up compost. That's what, he's, that's what he's thinking about. Wisdom, he says, wisdom is good, wise person. Wisdom is good. But in the end, you will be dirt 
that used to be wise. That's it. And he's facing that reality. It's like he knows wisdom is good, wisdom is better. He's not exactly sure why wisdom is better. It's going to be revealed as the book goes on. But he's glad he has wisdom, but he's looking at how this is going to end, and he says, what is the point? This was difficult being why. What is, what is the point? How did this make any difference in the end? I'm just going to be dirt that used to be wise. Verse 16. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So not only does the wise man die, who he was and what he did will be forgotten. He says, is what I've done going to make any permanent difference, any lasting difference? And his conclusion is, it will not. Not only am I going to die, but everything that I did and everything that I am will be forgotten. There's a movie called About Schmidt, which I'm not recommending. In that movie, Jack Nicholson, his character is trying to find meaning in life. That's the basic plot of the movie. He's trying to find meaning in his life. He begins to sponsor a child in Africa, thinking that maybe that will bring him a sense of fulfillment. And there's one scene where he writes to this child in Africa that he is sponsoring a a note. And here's what the note said. And he was coming to the same conclusions that Solomon came to. I know we're all pretty small in the big scheme of things, and I suppose the most you can hope for is to make some kind of difference, but... What kind of difference have I made? What in the world is better because of me? Once I am dead, and everyone who knew me dies too, it will be as though I never even existed. What difference has my life made to anyone? None that I can think of. None at all. Hope things are fine with you. Yours truly, Warren Schmidt. So no surprise, no surprise for Solomon. The professor came to the following conclusion in verse 17. Look with me. So I hated life. Wow. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after wind. Okay, so that is the first section. Solomon looks back over his madness and folly and concludes that it amounted to nothing. And so he's feeling hatred for his life. Excellent. Let's move on to the second section. Remember, we're we're hanging on for the third section. So, I, I mean, if you need to get up and like walk around or breathe into a paper bag, no judgment. It gets worse before it gets better. Verses 18 through 23. Now, in these verses, the king gives his Full assessment of all his hard work. Here's what he had to say. Verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. Why? Seeing that, I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. This bothered Solomon. 
He worked and built and established. And then he was going to die. And everything he worked for was going to end up in the hands of someone who hadn't worked for it. And they might even be a fool. In fact, we know from 1 Kings chapter 12, that's exactly what ended up happening. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, will inherit everything. He will be a fool, and he will end up losing like 80% of Solomon's wealth. Philip Ryken in Why Everything Matters said, this is one of the great frustrations of human existence. We are born with a deep longing to have something, make something, or do something that will last, yet... Under the sun, reality is that we will spend our whole lives working to gain something we can never keep. Now, verse 20. So I turned about. This is, this is sad. This is sad if you sympathize here with the, the sorrow this man was experiencing. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. Over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Verse 22. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow. And his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. It's depression, the lowest. These are the things he's thinking about. There's no satisfaction in my life. There's no, there's no meaning in my life. There's no purpose in my life. There's no, there's no joy in my life. He's restless. Even when he's trying to sleep at night, he says. This despair keeps me awake. So there you have it. Solomon looks back at his pleasure seeking and calls it vanity. Solomon looks back at his hard work and he calls it vanity. It came up empty. It didn't satisfy. And it seems... To put him over the edge. He gave, he said, his heart up to despair. That same question and conclusion put Russian author Leo Tolstoy over the edge. Listen to what he wrote in a confession. He sounds like Solomon. My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man. A question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything? Why do anything? It can also be expressed thus. Is there any Meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy. He had, like Solomon, given his heart up to despair. 
as he evaluated and assessed his life under the sun and came up with the same conclusion that the professor had come up with. And that is that all of life under the sun is vanity. Okay, you made it. That brings us to the final verses of this first section, which I mentioned this once before. Martin Luther calls these verses a remarkable passage, one that explains everything preceding and following it. He's not the only one to say that. These verses are, are the glasses you put on to really interpret this whole book that Solomon is writing. He'll say that the things that he says here, he'll say in many different ways throughout the book. So it's really important that we understand these verses. And in order to understand them, we need to do a little bit of exegetical work and actually tweak our translation, which I am not suggesting lightly, so let me show you what I mean. Feel free to write in your Bible, but we need to do some exegetical work here. These verses, verses 24 through 26, have been tough for translators ever since the Bible has been translated into different languages. These are very difficult verses to translate. There used to be an issue with verses 25 and 26. If you have a translation other than the English Standard Version, for example, you'll see some problems in those translations. The ESV worked that out, but there is still an issue, I think, in my humble opinion, along with many others, there's still an issue with verse 24. So look there with me. Verse 24. If you have, I know most of you do, if you have an ESV, it reads like this. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Now to me, and to many others, that seems to say the opposite of what Solomon has just said. He has said, I've tried to find enjoyment in my toil and in eating and in drinking, and I couldn't. That's the opposite of what the ESV says there. I mean, that was his experiment, right? That's why he ended up hating his life. That's not possible. He tried the toiling, the eating, the drinking, and he could not find enjoyment. So maybe that's not what verse 24 actually says. So let me show you the literal translation. So we're just going to go back to the original Hebrew. And this is actually what it says. So the ESV, which I just read, says... There is nothing better for a person than. You see that in your ESV, and feel free to write this in. That phrase, there is nothing better for a person than, literally translates, there is nothing good in a person. That's the literal translation. There is nothing good in a person. So the words in your ESV, the words for and then, they have been added by translators because that same phrase appears two other times in the book of Ecclesiastes. 
and those times it has the word for and then. And so translators assume that those two words accidentally dropped out of the manuscripts over the years and they plugged them back in and that's why they're in the ESV. Which I submit, and many others, was actually a mistake. Better to take the literal word-for-word translation here. So, let me now give you a full literal reading of these verses, which I think will make more sense, making the changes to verse 24. There is nothing good. Now, he means, that means inherently. Like in you. There is nothing good in a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Now that all goes together. Now that all makes sense. He is saying that there is nothing good in a person. You don't have the power, the ability, he is saying, to find enjoyment in your toil and in your eating and in your drinking in this life. That's actually from the hand of God. God has made life vanity. He's made it that way for, apart from him, that's what Solomon did. He cut himself off from God for, apart from him, Here's this question, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? That's a rhetorical question. What's the answer if the question is, so apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? What is the answer based on verse 24? No one. That's the point he's made. No one can find enjoyment in this life. No one can find enjoyment in such mundane activities as eating food and drinking drink and toiling and working. No one. That's the experiment. That's what he tried to do. There is no enjoyment apart from God. It is not in man's power to gain True satisfaction in anything on this planet. Anywhere on this planet. No enjoyment under the sun. Now. I wonder if you're thinking something at this point. Something that I've thought. Is that really true? There is no joy anywhere under the sun. But don't, this is my rebuttal that my mind, but don't I see people all the time, apart from God, enjoying this life? That's my question. Solomon's saying no. There is no enjoyment, no true satisfaction. There is nothing good in a person that enables him to eat and drink and find enjoyment 
in his toil. But don't people enjoy these things apart from God? Now here, after thinking about this and reading about this and praying about this, here would be my answer to that question. Okay, Solomon, you say no one has any enjoyment under the sun, and I'm saying, well, don't I see people all the time who don't know you and aren't Christians and don't love God? Don't I see them enjoying this life? And here's the answer. Not if they're wise. Not if they're wise. So Solomon, Tolstoy, Nietzsche, Ernest Hemingway, all of them said the same kind of thing as they assessed life and evaluated life. Nothing meaningless. Here's the thing. Here's what men like them had in common. They were not idiots. Those aren't idiots. Those men are not fools in the sense that they faced grim reality. All of them, Solomon, Tolstoy, Nietzsche, Hemingway, they all faced reality. They were wise, remember, according to Solomon's definition. Their eyes were open. Their eyes were open. They were wise men at the end of their ropes. They saw life for what it was and what it wasn't. And the answers they came up with were depressing because they were wise according to Solomon's definition. They had that knowledge. They could see things for what they are to a degree. They, they could face that reality that, as T.S. Eliot said, is so hard for human beings to bear. Life is vanity. And there is, verse 24, nothing good in a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment. Life is vanity. And not because there is no God. But because that is the nature of life apart from Him. vapor it's vanity no true joy no true satisfaction at least not if you're wise I'll explain more of that in conclusion here's the hope or better to say here's the joy Listen to the verses again, this time with verse 26. Because that's the shift. Verse 26 is the first positive thing Solomon says in this book. So let me read the verses again, beginning in verse 24. And we'll get to verse 26. There is nothing good in a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? And now here is the shift. For 
to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Look at 26 again. Listen. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. You put those verses together, and here's what Solomon is saying. No joy unless God gives it. That's what he's discovered. That's what he's saying. No joy unless God gives it and he does to those who please him. Joy. Not in my power, chapter 5, verse 19, we'll say. Where Solomon talks about God giving to his people the power to enjoy the gifts that he's given them. So God gives you these gifts, and that's not enough. Because you won't enjoy them unless God then gives you the power to enjoy them. Joy is a gift from God. And for those who please God, he gives this gift of joy, this ability to enjoy life. This ability to enjoy the vanity. So here are your options. Under the sun. Here's how we can live. Solomon had tried all of these. But here are our options. Here is how we can live under the sun. Number one, you can be a fool. That's an option. And many go this route. Many have gone this route. Some of you have gone this route. You can be a fool and you can distract yourself. You can plug your ears, numb your senses, dull your mind, put on a blindfold, tell yourself stories so that you do not have to face grim reality. And I would submit that that's what most people are doing. You could just be a fool. Just put a blindfold on. I'm not going to think about it. It's too depressing. It's too discouraging. I'm just going to distract myself from that. Now, I'm going to quote to you at length right now from Woody Allen. I pretty much promise I'll never do this again. But the reason I'm going to quote from him right now is that I think this is a very interesting look at the fool. And what the fool has to do to survive reality. And you decide whether or not that's the route you want to go. But this is what he says on the meaningless of life. I firmly believe, and I don't say this as a criticism, that life is meaningless. I'm not alone in thinking this. There have been many great minds far, far superior to mine. 
that have come to that conclusion. It's true. And unless somebody can come up with some proof or some example where it's not, I think it is. I think it's a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing. He's quoting Shakespeare's Macbeth. And that's just the way I feel about it. I'm not saying that one should opt to kill oneself. That's an interesting thing to say. I'm not saying that one should opt to kill oneself. But the truth of the matter is, when you think of it, every 100 years there's a big flush and everybody in the world is gone and there's a new group of people. And that gets flushed. And there's a new group of people. And this goes on and on interminably. And I don't want to upset you toward no particular end, no rhyme or reason. That's why over the years I've never written or made movies about political themes. Because while they do have current critical importance, in the large scheme of things, only the big questions matter, and the answers, listen to what he says, and the answers to those big questions are very, very depressing. What I would recommend, this is the solution that I've come up with, is distraction. That's the way of the fool. You're in the world, and it's so terrible, and all these things are going on, and you go into a dark room, the movie theater, you're there for an hour and a half, and Fred Astaire is dancing. It's like drinking a cold drink on a hot day, and you're refreshed, and you walk back out into the terrible heat, and you could take it for another few hours, maybe more. The artist can't give you an answer that's satisfying to the dreadful reality that's your own existence. So the best you can do is maybe entertain people and refresh them, and then they can go on and meet the onslaught until they're sunken and crushed, and then somebody else comes along and picks them up a little bit. That's the fool. That's just plugging the ears, covering your eyes, ignoring reality, not asking those big questions that your heart is always asking, ignoring the answer because it's so depressing apart from God. And just trying to distract yourself with thing after thing after thing. That's the way of the fool. And it's an option. Not one I would recommend. Another option is you can be a wise man. But a wise man faces reality and grows depressed. A wise man thinks. Resists the temptation to distract himself. He asks the hard questions. And he comes up with the answers. That is nothing. It's vanity. You can't figure it out. You're going to die. You're going to be forgotten. What you're doing is going to make no lasting permanent difference. That was the end of the rope Solomon came to as the wisest man in the world. It's vanity. So you could be a fool. You won't be depressed. You'll die and be depressed. You could be the wise man and just be depressed forever. Or there's the godly man. There's the man who knows God. Who loves God. 
and to whom God gives the power to enjoy his life. The man who knows God. The man who loves God. The man who is given by God the power to enjoy his life. See, Solomon will talk about this in his book. He uses that phrase, under the sun, I told you 26 times. And he's saying, I'm telling you, under the sun, there's no joy. There's no satisfaction. Cut yourself off from God and good luck. No meaning, no purpose, no value, no worth, no hope, no peace, no joy. He's going to use this other phrase a few times above the sun. Above in the heavens. You will not have any joy under the sun. You need to get your mind out from under the sun and get it above the sun. You need a different perspective. You need a different worldview. You need to know God. Apart from Him, there will be zero joy. So which are you? Right now, which one of those men are you? Which one of those women are you? Which one of those kids are you? Are you the fool? Distracting yourself? Young people are good at this. And the temptation, the temptation, those of you that are in middle school, those of you that are in high school, the temptation, it's very easy to not think about these big things. It's very easy to distract yourself. You've got a lot going on. You're very busy. You really are. It's very easy to not ask yourself these big questions. It's very easy to feel invincible and I, I can deal with this later and I'll put it off. And that's grown-up stuff. It's adult stuff. Once I figure out what I'm going to do for a career, then I'll figure out what I'm going to do spiritually. That's the temptation. And then the temptation is to prolong that. And to do it into your 20s and into your 30s and into your 40s. We are experts in this country, especially at prolonging adolescence, especially spiritually. So the temptation will just be to distract yourself, distract yourself, distract yourself. I'll get serious about the gospel then. I'll get serious about God then. Don't do that. Don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. Don't distract yourself from reality. Who you are, who God is, what this world is. Where joy is found, where peace is found, where happiness is found. Don't be the fool. Don't distract yourself. If you're an adult here and you just say, I can't think about that. I can't ask myself those questions. I can't go there. I don't want to do that. Are you being a fool? Are you going to numb yourself all the way to hell? Are you going to distract yourself for however many years God gives you? And then the first time you face reality is when you see it face to face in the eyes of Jesus, your judge. Is that how you want this to go down? Are you a fool today? Are you a wise person? 
you're plagued with these questions and these answers. You've been tempted to distract yourself, but you, you're just not wired like that. You can't do that. And it drives you to despair. Discourages you. It depresses you. You can't face reality. You're constantly changing the channel. You're constantly changing the subject. Unwilling to face it. You have waves and seasons where you're distracted and doing better, but it always draws you back. Or do you know God? You cannot know God apart from Christ. You just can't. So you're saying, I've been a fool. I don't want to be a fool. I've been the wise one with the eyes open. That hasn't gone well. I, don't, I, I, want, I, want this, I want to know God. I want to know God. I want to love God. I don't know God. I don't love God. What, what do I do? And all I can tell you is that the only way to God is through Jesus Christ. He himself said, I am the way. And the truth and the life. There is, no one gets to the Father except through me, Jesus said. The only way to God is through Christ. Jesus came and lived and suffered and died in the place of sinners like you. So that sinners like you could know God. So that sinners like you could be reconciled to God. So in Christ alone, hear Solomon saying this with everything he's got. In Christ alone, may we receive this gift of joy in this vain life under the sun. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to receive this word, to believe this word. Help us, God, to change paths, to change direction. If they're fools here, God, turn them into godly men and women and kids. If there's wise people here, turn them. Make us, God, a people who know you and who love you. Give us this grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.